A couple shows, I want to share with you a couple shows my wife and I recently watched. They were documentaries. And, and the first one, I, I've, I've chatted with quite a few of you because it happened recently near here. Um, the Rajneesh community of Central Oregon, right? So Netflix ran a special, Wild Wild Country. You don't really need to see it because it's... Anyway. <laughs> um, the Rajneesh in, in, in Antelope, right? Uh, Y'all, you, you if you've been around this area, I guess you remember this uh, fairly well. I remember reading about it in college or whenever it happened, a little after that. Um, and as I watched the documentary, it was, it was just amazing, right? These people, what, they, what, what drove them, their commitment to it, the way they would, their obedience, right, to whatever was said. And they, it was just... This, this, it was a, you would call it a utopian or an extreme society, right? So we watched that and we're like, our minds are a little bit blown that people would buy into this and, and be a part of it. And so we're, you know, and then we watched another one. It was um, on the, the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints, the FLDS, um, Warren Jeffs. And, and we're watching that. And again, it's a utopian type society. It's an extreme, radical, fundamentalist part of the Mormon, the Latter-day Saints church. Um, and we watched it, and again, the devotion, and my wife and I are like, how? How do they get people to line up like that and, and, and make all these what we might consider pretty extreme decisions, lifestyle decisions? And we're, we're watching these two shows, and, and, and I got to thinking about these two shows from my message this morning, and um, there, there are other, other utopian societies. I kind of want to point these out because I, I want to make some comparisons here in a little bit. Maybe you've, you've probably heard of a, a lot of these. You've heard of the Shakers. You've heard of their furniture, right? Um, you might not know that they all took a vow of celibacy, so it was no surprise that this group wasn't long for this world. I think there's one old lady left. I read in National Geographic. I'm almost positive there's one, and I don't think there's going to be any more. I'm not sure. Brook Institute, the Brooks Farm, Transcendentalism. Um, you've heard some of these names. George Ripley, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Kind of a utopian society built around the love of humanity and, and not a whole lot of religion going on there. The Rappites, uh, George and Frederick, New Harmony, the Harmony, New Harmony, Indiana, the Harmony uh, societies. Here's a working definition for these utopian societies, and I kind of want to use this, um, and you'll see how I'm going to use it. It's a group of people who are attempting to establish a new social pattern based upon a vision of the ideal society and who have withdrawn themselves from the community at large to embody that vision in an experimental form. Now, there's a few other groups I could add to this definition and probably groups that you might not have thought about. Maybe you did think about them. They're a little bit more extreme, like the ones I had listed there were pretty benign. Um, David Koresh, remember David Koresh and the Branch Davidians, Waco, Texas, right? Uh, late 80s, early 90s, right? An extremist group. <sighs> hunkering down, waiting for the end times, right? They're an ad Adventist group. Uh, or Jim Jones and, and the temple in Guyana and the, and the, the punch, right? These, these groups can go sideways horribly, horribly sideways. And, and then a group, a, a couple, and I'm going to say these, and your, your, your eyebrows are going to raise Israel, was, was a utopian society. If, if we're going to depend on how we play with this definition and how far we stretch it, right? Israel. And in a more extreme sense, uh, the Essenes, of, of the Qumran community, right? And, and as 70 AD was rolling up and the Romans were going to crush Jerusalem and their group of Jews up and moved into the Judean hills, the desert, into the caves, and 
hunker down, right, to wait for the last times and live an extremely strict lifestyle so that they would be worthy, right, with the coming, with the, the end days. Uh, Catholic orders of the monastic movement. Again, I don't want to, uh, these groups, uh, if we play with this definition, and this last one, um, I, I, with a couple key differences, Christianity, we belong on this list. And I know some of you are going, whoa, 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 this is a cult list. And that is another name for it. Extreme societies, utopian societies, cults. Um, so hang in with me. Hang in just a little bit. And I just want you to see how Paul, how closely Paul drives at this definition. There were some differences, and we want to look at those differences. We're really not like the list that I just gave you. I think we're better. I hope we're better. Um, so, and if we're very honest with ourselves, we have definitely been called to live according to a different set of behaviors and social patterns, just like this definition. But the question we have is how different, how apart, and how separate does God expect us to be? Did Jesus Christ expect us to, to be? Um, so what I want to do, I want to make a couple general observations about these societies, two very quick general observations, and then two more very specific observations um, as they relate to our Christianity, right? I'm going to kind of draw some comparison, but I'm also going to contrast some things here. Um, so the first couple of things, and, and again, this is going to help us transition to our scripture this morning. Most of these, tr these societies, they're isolationists, right? Um, just like that definition you saw, they withdraw from society at large. They go out into the desert where nobody will bother them, nobody will look at them, nobody will judge them, nobody will put barriers up. They can do what they want to do out in the sticks. Um, so, and by doctrine, they're, they're, that, that's their whole goal. Um, so some of them are religious, motivated to either recreate something from the past, like Eden of the Old Testament, try to recreate the past, or they look forward to the future, some of these groups, and try to uh, create a, a future New Testament community um, on earth. Or some of them aren't even not trying to do anything. They're, they're just waiting for the end times. I mean, there were a couple crazy groups in San Diego, North San Diego County, where they all got into these bunk beds and they wore white sheets and they waited for a spaceship. I don't remember what the deal was, but that was, that was pretty crazy stuff. Um, other groups are secular. They're, they're, they're agrarian and they just believe in the goodness of mankind. If we all just love each other, funniest thing, they all implode because they don't have any power to live that closely together. Pretty soon they're, <laughs> I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, and pretty soon they all live on separate blocks. So. Right? A second general observation is that they have incredibly trustworthy, untrustworthy leaders. Right? You look at some of these societies, and many of them were led by selfish and or mentally unstable and or unscrupulous and or evil charlatans. Again, we watch these two documentaries, and we're just like, oh, my God, how do these people follow these evil incarnate? I mean, that's all I could think about. This is, this is like a picture of evil, um, some of these. Anyway. Strangely enough, and I, this, is, this, is a, this is a one-off, right? You can take this. These were the very charges that were leveled at Christ. Unscrupulous, charlatan, evil, all these things. And I, I just kind of like to throw out, if we become really, really serious about our faith, we will most likely get these same charges leveled at us. You guys are crazy. You're unscrupulous. You've got to have an ulterior motive, blah, 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 blah. Just kind of letting you know there. Now I want to make a couple very, very specific observations that help us, I think, find our place in today's scripture. The third thing that these utopians all 
all share, most of them share is they're focused on end times, right? They're, they're very, very focused on the end of the earth. Many, but not all, they're what's called Adventist, right? They almost solely focus on the advent or the second coming of Christ. Now, whether they're entirely focused on Jesus' return or they're looking at all the events of the end times because Jesus returning isn't, and I'm going to share this a little bit more in detail in a minute, isn't the, the everything of the end times, right? There's a whole bunch of stuff besides him returning. But let me just kind of stick with my notes here. Um, now, wh whether it's focused on just Jesus' return or all the events of the end times, the studies of the end times is called eschatology. Maybe some of you guys have seen this word before. Eschatology is the study of final or ultimate things. And it comes from the word eschaton, which means final event or culmination. Now, the problem with this word is a lot of people take it and apply it solely to the timeline of Jesus' return, right? And we've got some books and some films and some pretty fantastical, outlandish, theologically um, theories out there about this incredible timeline of all these events that have to happen, you know, before Christ, and, and people study these, and they make their, build their whole careers around these things, um, but that aspect is, that is definitely one aspect of eschatology, the return of Christ and, and anything and everything that that will entail. But really, the return of Christ is just, the, it's the tip of the iceberg. It's the, it's the thing that a whole bunch of stuff follows and all that other stuff is, is really as much as the return of Christ. Um, the full promise of the gospel is that because of what Jesus accomplished in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, Ultimately, one day when he returns, God will wipe away all tears, sickness, and death. Right? Yeah, Jesus is returning, Yahoo, but also all sickness and death will be done away with. That's pretty amazing. The effects of sin will be eradicated. That's amazing. Right? A redeemed and restored creation in which all things are the way that God designed them to be, apart from sin and death, will be realized finally when God will be all in all. That's eschatology. That's our eschatological hope. Not just that Jesus returns, but when Jesus returns, all of this amazing stuff happens. Yes, Jesus returns also, and we get to see him face to face. But everything else, that's the gospel message. This is the amazing thing. This is the eschatological hope of the Bible for those who are in Christ. All right? Now, hang with me here. In this sense, all of Christianity is eschatological. Right? If it hopes in and looks to a final culmination in which certain things will take place, the kingdom of God will push back and defeat the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of death once and for all time. That will happen. Right? Anything that falls short of this expectation and hope simply isn't the gospel. Now, I'm going to switch gears here. Hang on tight. A huge part of this expectation and this hope that we have, this eschatological hope, and it's the absolutely crucial, absolutely, if it weren't for this thing, we would be lost. We would be without hope. We would be in the situation of Israel before Christ. Huge part of this expect expectation and hope is that God's kingdom has already been inaugurated. Let me say that again. God's kingdom has already been inaugurated here on earth in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? He said the kingdom is at hand. That's not, it's arriving. That's a Jewish way of saying it's here, right? At hand. It's right here. The kingdom has arrived. No, don't, you don't need to wait any longer. Everything that you've been waiting for these last days, they begin with me, right? This is, this is huge. This is huge. This is huge for them. It was mind-boggling for them. It's huge, huge for us. 
In his personhood, Jesus Christ ushered in the culmination of all things. He ushered in the last days. If you ever hear anybody say, oh, Russia did this, oh, whatever, the last days are starting, they're wrong, right? God's word says that the last days started with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the beginning of the end of sin and death. It's not the end. That's when he returns a second time. But with his death and resurrection, we have the beginning of the end of sin and death. This is called the, not, but, the now but not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. Meaning that in Christ and only in Christ and continuing with the gift of the Holy Spirit and only with the gift of the Holy Spirit, we can experience aspects of heaven even now on earth. And I know this, 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 people struggle with this. People who don't attend holiness churches, they hear this, that. Y'all are crazy. Y'all are just crazy. Right? This is impossible. This is impossible. Not completely. This is the part they miss. Not completely, but in part, we experience heaven even now on earth through a, like a cloudy plane of glass, pane of glass like Paul described it. The fact of the matter is, because of this fact that the kingdom of heaven has already been inaugurated, lots of tears, lots of sickness, and lots of death can end now. It doesn't have to be. Now, physical death, <laughs> that's, that's not on the table for now, uh, but the death of relationships, the death of reputations, right? There's a lot of death that doesn't have to happen now because the kingdom of God has arrived, not fully, but in part has arrived. Even now, we can no longer, we no longer have to be enslaved to sin, Right? It still harasses, it, harasses us, it still gets us occasionally, but we do not have to be enslaved to sin. It is no longer our master. Bottom line right there. Even now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the world is being redeemed and restored. The kingdom of darkness is losing ground to the kingdom of God. Here and now, this is the holiness message. Again, if you've ever wondered, well, well, you're a holiness church, what's that mean? Here's what it means. Right? The battle's not over and we're winning and we will win. That's the holiness message. The Holy Spirit does change us in the core of who we are and collectively so that we're up to the task of joining Christ in the redemption of this world. That's God's purpose. We're called to live in the new creation, even in the very midst of the old creation that's slowly giving way. In fact, this is exactly what Paul's referring to in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. I'm going to be in Philippians if you've got Bibles, you want to use them. Otherwise, it's going to be up on the screen here. Starting at, at verse 12, chapter 3, it says this, Not that I have already attained all this. Right, you get the feeling of now but not yet. Now but not yet. Or have already arrived at my goal. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Um, if you're wrong and if you don't agree with me, God will make that clear to you. I just want to make sure you understood that passage. Um, only let us live up to what we have already obtained, right? That's the now. We have already obtained some heaven now. Let us live up to what we have already obtained. But like Paul says, I, I don't have it all yet. Now, but not yet. Again, some of you may be asking yourself, if this message series is all about discipleship and being Christ-like, why in the world are you talking about the end times? Why are you talking about eschatology? Because I hope to show you this morning that your understanding or your misunderstanding 
of end times, of eschatology, right? It will shape your thinking. It will shape the way you live your Christian life. It will inform you and shape you. Everything you do, how you view the end of the world, it'll change everything, the way you're living right now. I want to show you what I mean here. Let's start with what would be called an over-realized eschatology. That is somebody who expects that the eschatological hope of Christianity is already here and now completely, right? Somebody in this camp or who has this idea in their head, they, they might say something like, well, if Jesus has come and the kingdom of God has come, then there should no longer be any evil in the world, right? Everyone should be healed of sickness, and there should be no poverty or suffering in everyone, and everything should be the way that God designed it to be now. And if you believe well enough and correctly enough and have enough faith, you'll experience it all too, all of it now. Maybe not living forever, but everything else now. This leads to sometimes what people call prosperity gospel, right? Name it and claim it. Heaven is here. Anything that heaven, the Bible promises, you can have now. And then you have what's called an underrealized eschatology, a tendency to overrate the power of the rulers and authorities that dominate this world, and an underestimation of the Holy Spirit's power to make any kind of a difference. For this crowd, evil powers and authorities lurk everywhere and are responsible for everything wrong in the world. Right? You might hear them say something like, they've taken over the governments of the world and we're in the last days. Well, we're already in the last days, so you can ignore that statement, right? The beginning of the end. Here's how it plays in our Christian experience, though. The mindset helps it, it makes it easy to deflect any kind of thought of seriousness about our own sins or our contribution to the kingdom of darkness because it's the evil powers. They're doing everything. I, you know, it's not me. I, I'm, you know, not doing anything. Um, so we, under, we overestimate evil, but we underestimate both our own sin and any kind of power to deal with sin. And so, again, we hunker down, we pray for the return of Jesus because that's the only thing that's going to save Humanity. In effect, if we have an overrealized eschatology, we buy into the now, but we kind of ignore the not yet. Everything we expectantly wait for at Christ's return has already been available. If you believe correctly and if you have enough faith. So if any of you are struggling, it's your own fault. So, Pastor, more sermons on sin and repentance, and then a few name it and claim it passages. That's the only way these people who are struggling around me can get everything that I've asked for and that I got, that for some reason they don't have, must be on them. Or you have an underrealized eschatology, right? You totally focus on the not yet. There is nothing available now. No part of any promise is available as we battle sin and evil in our world, right? So, Pastor, no more sermons on sin and repentance. Like, why are you looking at me? I'm not the problem. The sin. The world, that's the problem. You go out there and preach to them. You don't need, you're preaching to the choir in here. Here's the reality. Here's the reality. This is, I'm going to pick up in verse 17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. He's talking about people in the church here. He's not talking about people outside the church. Make sure you're aware of this. He's talking about people inside the church. They're living as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. What Paul is saying right here very, very clearly is the kingdom has arrived, but clearly not yet. <laughs> some people are fully buying into and they're enjoying whatever is available, and some people clearly are not. 
the battle's still being waged. It hasn't yet been completed if you're in that over-realized eschatology camp. It hasn't been completed yet. There's so much more to come. And it isn't a lost cause either if you're in the under under-realized eschatology and you think we have no power. No, we do have power. It is not a lost cause. The resurrection power available through the Holy Spirit equips us to break free from sin and also empowers us to live a victorious life participating in the mission of God, not just struggling, not just hunkering down and praying for the return. Not at all. So in last week's message, I commented on a comment from an unbeliever. And it turned out to be really accurate, right? The unbeliever said, I don't expect Christians to be perfect, right, with an over-realized eschatology, but they ought to be at least different, not as bad as the rest of us with an under-realized eschatology. I mean, they, they, they should be somewhere in the middle, right? I don't expect them to be perfect, but they shouldn't be like one of us. They need to be at least different. Scott Daniels is a pastor at um, Napa First Church. Not sure. Call his church there. Thank you. He tells a story of Jewish kids walking with their dad in New York. And they've all got their hat, and, and he's, you know, they're, they're, they're distinctly different than everybody else walking on the street in New York. And, and the kids ask the dad, like, Dad, you've had it. Like, I asked my dad, why do we got to go to church on Sunday? All my friends are out playing ball. Right? And these Jewish kids ask their dad, why do we got to wear these? And why do you look so different than all the other dads? And why... Are we so different? And this wonderful Jewish dad explained to his kids, we're different because God set us apart. Right? We're different because God set us apart for a very, very specific purpose for this world, a part that we have to play. And he called us to be different. Just called us to be different. So we have to kind of ask ourselves as Christians, in the face of constant societal change and challenges to our faith and our, our way of life, our lifestyles, how different, right? I know we, we all ask this, how different, how holy, how set apart, how sanctified do we got to be to help Christ save the world, right? Because we'd love to say, well, Christ, you can handle this, can't you? Can I just wear my flip-flops and cargoes and everything will be good? <laughs> God says, No. So then, then with all this set apart and the sanctification stuff, we hear words like holiness and sanctification, and we think of saintly people who never fail and they never do anything wrong, but that is absolutely not true. It's like just, that, that's just what we built the word into. Here's what the word actually means. To sanctify means to make holy or to be made holy. And holiness refers to separation or apartness, right? We've made it into behavior and perfection, but that's really not what the word means. In the Old Testament, Israel was called a holy people because of their separation to God from other nations. It was definitely not because of their exemplary behavior, right? They were as horrible as the next crowd, right? You read about them, you're like, what is going on there? And the concept of holiness continues to describe God's people in the New Testament. They're called Christians. So if you're, if you're wondering, am I holy? You are holy, because God has set you apart for his purposes. You, in this room, you are all holy. You're thinking, I'm not holy. You ought to, hear what, you ought to jump inside my head while you've been talking. I don't want to jump inside your head while I've been talking. I just believe what's going on inside your head isn't as important as the fact that God has called you apart for his purposes. And because of that, he will deal with those images that you got in your, going on in your head there. Um, 
And so God sets us apart, not from the world like a lot of these societies that we looked at, not apart from the world, but for his purpose. We're set aside for his purposes, not geographically from other people, but for his purposes. The Christian life is a life set apart for God's purpose, which is to be in the world, but not of the world in order to save the world. Again, so how different, how set apart, how separated, how holy do we got to be to play our part? Offhand, this, this, is, this is the first thought that hit me, and I, I didn't do a whole lot of digging. My answer is different in such a way that we don't repel people, but rather we draw people in. I, I mean, you, you could go wrong with that definition, right, by offering weird stuff to come to church. And, I mean, you, you could go wrong, but, but I like that. Bottom line, what we do should draw people in. You look at the life of Christ, and he didn't mess around with morality, and, and sinful people love being around him. I, it's the craziest thing. They love being around him. How often do sinful people like being around church people? Never. Never. They don't. They don't like it. Just in case you were wondering, they don't. Now, the idea is fairly simple. The implications are a bit more staggering, right? But not impossible by any stretch, okay? Check this out. The world operates on an honor and shame basis. Based on your heritage, your occupation, your social position, your fame, your money, whatever, you have either honor or shame. It's the way the world's operated since day one. Large part of the world still operates on honor and shame. And it's pretty permanent unless you kill somebody to remove the shame and return the honor. Somebody's got to die. In a lot of parts of the world, it could be a family member. Some part of the world, you, you have to take your own life in order to restore honor and remove the shame. See, this is the way the world operates. Christians are called to operate on a different basis, basis of sacrificial love and forgiveness. The world will respond to sacrificial love and forgiveness. They are repelled by the honor and shame system of the world. And sometimes we in the church, and I know the world does this, but we need to be careful. Do we sometimes totter toward honor and shame as we look at people and we decide, do they belong with us? Can they call themselves Christians? And we, we start drawing lines and we shame. I don't know where these lines are drawn. I, this, is, this is something we all need to struggle with, not just the pastors. And I know you do. I'm not, not, I'm not implying that you don't. My goodness. Um, the world of honor and shame crucified Jesus. Right? That's the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of death. See, in this kingdom, lions eat lambs. Right? The strong devour the weak. But then there's the world of sacrificial love and forgiveness. That's the world that resurrected Jesus. This is the kingdom of God where lions don't eat lambs. You'll notice I use the term kingdom quite a bit. This is on purpose because as, as it turns out, Paul uses this exact language, this kingdom language, slaves, reigning, all, these kind of, all this kind of stuff. And he uses it, I think, to describe this huge gap, this huge distance between the two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of death and the kingdom of darkness. And our position between these two kingdoms, the now but not yet tension, right? There's tension there. It's now but not yet. Remember from last week, I read this. I'm just going to go back over this again. This is Romans chapter 6. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. 
For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin which leads to death or to obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So if you misheard me last week and nobody called me and said, what are you crazy? Every little sin counts. It does. Every little sin counts, but not as much as the next step that you take. Not as much as the next step you take. It'll be either one step further into darkness and further toward death, or it'll be an abrupt 180-degree turn toward a God who loves you enough to not allow you to not allow you to stay in this position, who loves you enough to use that horrible decision that you just now made to sanctify you. He uses those horrible decisions we make when we turn toward him. Romans 8, 28 becomes reality. He takes that bad decision and he makes something good. I don't know how he does it, but he makes something good come out of it. And then that next step, and then that next step. Paul seems to be describing a situation as Christians. Our lives are either in this kingdom or in this kingdom, and we can't be having one foot planted in each kingdom. It simply doesn't work. What he's saying is you're either in one kingdom and you're moving toward that kingdom deeper and deeper, or you're moving into this kingdom, God's kingdom, deeper and deeper. You stand still, and you're in, you're, you're in trouble. You're in deep, deep trouble if you're standing still. See, we bought into this idea that some of our sin patterns, and I say sin patterns, because when I say sin, people like to go, well, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't stolen anything. I haven't, you know, and they kind of go through real quickly the Ten Commandments. I'm good. I'm good. But they don't recognize that some of their patterns, like the way they treat some of their neighbors, the way they don't treat some of their neighbors, right? Not sins of commission, but sins of omission, right? We think that the law and all of its 600 whatever laws is hard to, to follow, but the law of love is a bazillion times harder because there's no limits, Right? The law was like, just don't do these things. But the law of love says, do all these things and don't stop. Right? You can't reach a limit. Paul seems to be saying that in each sin, whether it's a sin of commission or a sin of omission, I think that's the one that Christ is worried about, the sins of omission. We're so concerned about the sins of commission, the bad things that we do. Christ's like, have you done anything good? I'll forgive the bad stuff, but... What do I do with no good? Right? He seems to be saying that each sin, with each, each sin, we actively participate in the kingdom of death to some degree. He seems to be describing here and elsewhere in his letters a literal battle, a competition with life and death consequences to push back the darkness, right? We have all this talk um, of spiritual armor, you know, the helmet, the breastplate, the sword, the shoes, all, you know. The, 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 he, he's making it sound like it's not a big deal. It's a huge, huge deal. It's not benign. It's not benign at all. Kind of sounds like that fourth thing I noticed watching the two documentaries. You were wondering if I was going to get to that fourth thing. You look at these societies, and they have radical devotion and obedience. And I know the reasons are bizarre because they're scared to death, more than likely. But I look at them, and I was watching the shows, and I'm like, what if we were that obedient? I think Christ would say, well, I'm ready to return. Everybody's heard about me, and every, every knee is bowed, and church has done a great job. I'm, I'm coming home, I, you know? That'd be awesome. 
In 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're not going to go there, this is your homework, chapter 2, he, he compares this radical devotion, this radical obedience to the dedication required to be a professional soldier. I just kind of want to ask you very quickly, how many of you take your faith as seriously as a professional soldier takes their training? You don't need to raise your hand. As seriously as the self-discipline of an Olympic athlete, right? Every minute of every day is orchestrated. Or the incredibly hardworking farmer, right? Paul draws a picture of these three occupations that all three require so much discipline and diligence. This is the Christian life, and we don't normally see it this way, I have a feeling. If you look at that list, Christians should never be isolationists. We were called to be in the world, and we do not have a trustworthy leader in Jesus Christ. Oh, my goodness, we do not have that. But these last two, I think, we need to look at these two. These, these are the characteristics we share with some of these crazy societies. We're supposed to be a crazy society, I think. We're called to be radical, where people have stopped literally in their tracks and go, they're different. They don't operate on honor and shame. They operate on sacrificial love and grace and forgiveness. Kind of like that. People will not be repelled by that message. <laughs> they just won't. Let me finish my selected passage this morning because Paul is describing a utopian society. I'm going to pick up at verse 19. I'm going to read it again to kind of let us slide back into this passage. Their, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. Now, if you were listening to this message in, in Philippi, Philippi was a Roman colony, meaning this. The, the citizens of, of Philippi had been taken over by the Roman Empire, and what the Roman Empire would do is if you were a soldier, you served your 21 years, you got to go live in one of these cities, usually where you had done battle and you'd been there for a while and you'd, you found a nice little place to call your own. And so they would, they would have these people, these soldiers, go live in these colonies. Here's the idea. When you were a soldier who retired at year 21 of your service and you lived in this colony, wherever it was in the Roman Empire, you were Roman. You were not from Philippi. You were Roman. You dressed Roman. You spoke Latin. You did every, You were the Roman Empire planted squarely in the middle of this other empire. And you never forgot who you were. You were a Roman citizen. You were not concerned with how Roman the other citizens were. Your concern was that you were a Roman. 100%. That was your job, is to be Rome in all parts of the Roman Empire. I think we've become a little bit lackadaisical in our faith when I compare us to everything that Paul is talking about. And I don't mean lackadaisical and condemning sin. We're pretty good at that. But I think we've gotten incredibly lazy extending grace, sacrificial love, and forgiveness to a world stuck, just like us, between a promise and a realization, right? The now, but the not yet. The now but not yet understanding helps us make sense of the world that we live in today. It helps us deal with this reality of sin in our own lives, and yet it, it gives us a tremendous amount of grace as we look at our neighbors and our friends and they see, we see their struggles. And if we have a balanced view of the end times and the power that we have available to us and the powers that we don't yet have available to us, 
kind of gives us a better balance of the world, right? We're not up there and they're not down there. We're all kind of in the same boat. We're kind of stuck in the middle between this promise and a realization. So my prayer this morning, my challenge for us is to live radical lives, radical lives of sacrificial love and forgiveness, not radical lives of condemnation, right? Our call is not to repel people. We're supposed to be drawing them in. Somehow every church should be filled if we're preaching the right message and we're living the lives of sacrificial love and forgiveness. Let me close with a word of prayer. Father, give us power, the power that your word says that we have if we would access it. But Father, this power isn't something to be messed around with. It's, it's something we need to commit to. Otherwise, it's powerless. Father, everything, so much of what you do depends on our response. You call and we respond. Then things happen. But when you call and we don't respond, things do not happen. You don't force it on us. So, Father, if we want to live the victorious life, give us courage. Give us your Holy Spirit regularly. Give us the courage to ask for your Holy Spirit regularly so that we can live the victorious life that you have promised in Scripture. Father, we thank you for all these things. We thank you that we, we don't have it figured out yet, which means that everyone else has an opportunity and they have a chance. But also, we're not like everybody else. We are different because we have your Holy Spirit. So, Father, make us obvious in a beautiful way. Thank you, Father, in your son's name I pray these things. Amen.